welcome to True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. Hey everyone, it's Kelly from True Crime IRL. Welcome to the show. Today I'm doing something a little different. I'm not telling you so much a story, but I'm letting someone else tell the stories. I'm interviewing Vic Ferrari. He is a retired NYPD detective turned author. And he has written six books in which he tells so many funny and some serious also stories pulled straight from his career as a police officer. Like I said, he's got a lot of stories to tell and he told several of them on this episode. I haven't interviewed someone for a long time, so it was kind of fun to bring him on the show. We had some good laughs and some good conversation. So I hope you enjoy. And if you want to read his books, there are six of them. I highly recommend going to Amazon and searching for Vic Ferrari, just like the car, and get them in the mail. Or you can get an audio version as well. They're very affordable. Just a really fun, quick read. And what are you doing this summer? Captain from True Crime Garage and I are doing another live show. This one is going to be at the Brew Dog Brewery in Cleveland, Ohio. It's Thursday, July 14th at 7 p.m. Again, Brewdog Brewery, Cleveland. This is going to be a pretty small, intimate show this time. So I highly recommend going and getting your tickets as soon as possible because they will sell out. You can go to CaptainFatHands.com slash events to get those tickets. Go do that. Go do it now because I want to see you there. What else do we have going on? Let's see. Okay. Did you know that I'm editing Truth and Justice and True Crime Binge, both with Bob Ruff now? Yep, I'm his editor. And oh, it's so fun. I love this new job. I love it. And um, I highly recommend going and listening to this season. Well, and all the others too, but especially this season since I'm working on it. If you haven't listened, every season they do a deep dive on a case. This season is Pinion Pines. It's a crazy case and there are some people in prison for these murders, but did they really do it or did they get the wrong guys? If you want to hear my epic editing skills, they're much better than the show I do for True Crime IRL, actually. So if you want to hear that, go listen to Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff and True Crime Binge. Coming up soon, what do I have? Let's see. So I'm going to take a different approach to the show for a few episodes. I am taking a deep dive into crimes and conspiracies of the Catholic Church. I am working on researching that right now. I've got a lot of stuff. I mean, hello, it's the Catholic Church. I could probably do a whole entire season or a whole entire podcast on Catholic Church crimes and conspiracies, but they are so interesting. So that's what I'm working on right now. That's going to be coming up here in a few weeks. Also, guess what I'm doing? I'm writing a book. (laughs) I've partnered with Beyond the Fray Publishing, and I am writing a book. The tentative release date is November 2022. I am super excited, very nervous. I don't know what I'm doing, but 
hey, I could say that about a lot of things I've done and it's all worked out. So it's going to be good. I'm super excited. So stay tuned for more details on my book coming out this fall. So I think that's enough of the business right now. And hey, let's get into this interview with Vic Ferrari, former NYPD cop turned author right now. Hey, everyone. Welcome to True Crime IRL. Today, I have a very special guest, Vic Ferrari. He's an author, former NYPD detective. He's got a lot of stories to tell. So welcome to the show, Vic. No, I want to say thank you, Kelly, and I appreciate you having me on your show. Absolutely. Did I pronounce your last name right? Is it actually Ferrari? Yeah, I like the car. Like, is that your real name or is that your pen Pen name? name. (laughs) Is it? It's a pen name. Okay. Well, I like it. It works. Well, I don't. If you remember the television series Taxi, yes, I do. Okay, so when Latka, Andy Kaufman's character, would get a blow to the head or get some type of traumatic incident, he would revert into Vic Ferrari, this cool, studly guy that would try yeah. to pick up women, and yep. he had a nice car. And I love it. So that's so you. That's kind your of al- alter ego. Yeah, that's your alter ego. I was just going to say that. <laughs> well, I love that. Uh, Okay, so you're a retired NYPD detective turned author. So how long were you in the NYPD? Tell me a little bit about that, how long you did that. And um, yeah, tell me a little and when you retired and stuff like that. Okay, I'm a Bronx kid born and raised. Uh, I always wanted to be an NYPD detective. Uh, My parents wanted to kill me because they wanted me to go on to college or go on to bigger and better things. But I knew I wanted to be a detective. Um, by the age of 10, I was stealing um, wanted posters out of the local post office and wandering around the Bronx where as a 10-year-old boy wanted posters looking for some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Kansas City. Oh, I my goodness. I, yeah, I knew what I wanted to do at an early age. Yeah. So I got hired by the New York City Police Department when I was 21 years old. I, um, I had a 20-year career there. I was hired from 1987 to 2007. I did 20 and out. Okay. I worked in a lot of different units. I worked in a DUI unit. I worked in a plainclothes unit. I worked in narcotics. But my last 10 years, I was a detective assigned to the auto crime division. So we we investigated organized rings that were involved in auto theft, chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, mafia. If, If we were on a case and there were homicides involved with it, we would run with it. Um, and then after a 20-year run, I retired and moved down to Florida. And then I got into writing and I just started cranking out these books that are filled with, you know, different stories from my NYPD career. Yeah. Oh, that's so awesome. So these are based on like real stories, like based on factual things that you you went through. These are true stories, or are they kind of like a mix of fiction and nonfiction? Or are they all yeah. real things? The framework of all these stories happened either to me or someone else I knew or famous stories that have circulated through the New York City Police Department. The two things I I, when I got into writing police books, I didn't want to get anybody in trouble or divorced. Okay. (laughs) yeah. So I don't name names. I change boroughs, locations, ranks. You know, it's like I have no sour grapes. I had a wonderful career. Now, obviously, I didn't get along with everybody I ever worked with, but I'm not one to turn around and use like a bully pulpit and just embarrass people. That's not my way. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not like a tell all like, oh, I'm going to expose all the secrets. (laughs) 
No, it's 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 a lot of funny stories and investigative stories that most people wouldn't really realize. It's like if you ever gone to Disney World and you go, how does that happen? Like they give like a behind the scenes tour of Walt Disney World. My books are like a behind the scenes, what really goes on in a station house or a detective bureau. And again, some of the stories are really funny and some of them are really embarrassing, but I don't name names. Okay. Well, speaking of the stories, how things really do be- happen behind the scenes, tell me one of something like one of the greatest stories, the funniest stories, the most outrageous stories. Tell me, tell me something that happened that you've put in your book. That, that's a favorite story of yours. Do you want to hear embarrassing or do you want to oh, hear? I want to hear. Let, let's start with embarrassing and then we'll go after that. We'll keep going. <laughs> okay. Okay. So in my book, NYPD Lauren Disorder, my latest NYPD book, I open up with a chapter called Embarrassing Moments. And most authors, when they're writing about themselves or something they know about that's near and dear to them, they try to portray themselves as the hero in their stories, right? We always have the witty comeback. We save the day in the nick of time because it's our story and we run with it, right? Right. So I said, you know what? I'm going to take a different angle on this. I wrote about a couple of really embarrassing things that happened to me during my NYPD career. And one day in the early 90s, my partner and I pull over this cab. And in the back seat, there's three guys and four wait, wait, wait. of coke. You pulled over a cab? Yeah. Why? Were they like driving crazy or something? I didn't know that cabs even like really got pulled over. What were they doing wrong? Oh, yeah. In New York City. Well, in New York City, they have what's called gypsy cabs. And usually okay. gypsy cabs are just a four-door car operated by someone that sometimes they have a driver's license. Sometimes they don't. Gotcha. They hang around the bus stop gotcha. or subway stations. It's like a dollar cab. Oh, okay. Okay. You if, never know if, what you're getting into with cabs like that. So, right. And, yeah. and if memory serves me correctly, as the cab drove by, one of the one of the guys from the back seat was hanging over the front seat, like with his head really close to the driver. And we had had gotcha. a series of cab robberies. So we figured, well, let's check this out. Yeah. We go and to you pull the found cab something. over. <laughs> yeah. And we go to pull the cab over. Now the cab takes it off and starts blowing lights. So we finally pull it over and there's three guys in the back seat with four kilos and they're passing the bag around like hot potato. The bag rips four kilos of Coke. So we pull the three guys out. We place them under arrest. I go into the station house. And I mean, for a cop in uniform to to come, you know, to to get four kilos of Coke on a car stop is kind of unheard of. So I'm parading around. You know, it's like I won the Stanley Cup. I'm I'm taking photos (laughs) with this. Everybody's coming over. You know, I mean, I'm on top of the world. You know, how much is four kilos? Like as far as size, like use your hands. What what would that? A kilo of coke. It's a brick. It's about two. It's two point five pounds of of cocaine. Wow, that's a lot of cocaine. Yeah. That's not the, that's not that was the first time I met the kilo fairy. Um later <laughs> on my career as a detective I I got uh, 5 kilos on a on a Holy cow. Uh, performance tip. Wow. Well, it's New York City, so I mean, it's you know, yeah. it's crimes are worse, you know what I mean? It's a little so different anyway, than where I live. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 <laughs> so so I'm on top of the world and despite this great arrest, the arrest still has to be processed. So two lieutenants take the cocaine down to the lab. Another couple of cops take the bad guys down to um, down to corrections. So uh, despite this great arrest, I still have to go down to the courthouse and write up this arrest. So it's in the South Bronx, the courthouse. It's not a really great neighborhood. After five o'clock, the whole neighborhood shuts down except for the courthouse. There's nothing to eat. Well, they just opened across the street from the courthouse, this brand new food court. So I said, oh, great. This will be a treat. I can go in there and get something decent to eat. So I go in there and they had like a little Italian restaurant and in this um, in this shopping mall. 
and I get chicken Parmesan, a soda. I'm sitting there and I'm reflecting over the arrest. And I'm like, this is great. I mean, you know, I'm just yeah. like, my chest is puffed out. I'm feeling so good about myself. Throughout my life, I've always had a bad stomach. And all of a sudden, I got to go. And it's like, I got to oh. go now. And I was like, shit, what am I going to do? So I'm not going to use the bathroom across the street in the courthouse. And I'm like, well, this food court, it's got a brand new bathroom. It's going to be clean. There'll be toilet paper. Great. Yeah. I go into this bathroom. There's nobody in there. It's like a cathedral. No one's ever used this bathroom before. I'm like, great. I go in. I'm in uniform. I take my gun belt off. I put it on the, on the back of the door of the bathroom, the stall door. I loosen my pants. I drop them to the floor. I sit down. I'm getting ready for liftoff. And the next thing you know, I hear the front door of the bathroom kick in and I hear four or five teenagers yelling and roughhousing. I'm like, oh, shit. And they're hitting the hand dryers. They're turning on the sinks. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a cop. I'm in uniform, but I'm kind of vulnerable. My pants down to my knees. Oh, yeah. And I hear them screwing around in there. And then all of a sudden it gets quiet. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe they saw a pair of legs under here and they decided to knock it off. And maybe they left, but it got real quiet. So I'm like, you know, something just doesn't something's not adding up. Something's not right. I should really finish up and get the hell out of here. Just as I'm about to finish up, I look up, I'm sitting on the bowl. I look up. One of the teenagers went into the next stall, jumped on the toilet and is now hanging over the stall wall. And he's trying to reach for my gun belt. Oh my gosh. Wow. This is the Bronx. Yeah. So I jump up with one hand with my left hand. I try to pull my pants up with my right hand. I grab him around the neck. And when I pull him, I inadvertently pull him a little bit over the wall and he's able to latch onto my gun belt. So now I'm like, oh shit. So now with my left hand, I let go of my pants now down to the floor. I got him by the neck and I'm just punching the shit out of him, telling him, let go of the gun belt, let go of the gun belt, right? While that's going on, his friends run into the next stall and they grab him around the legs. And now we got a, a, a game of tug oh of my war gosh, over an aluminum <laughs> Oh, it was wild. So wow. the kid, the kid lets go of the gun belt, right? It hits the floor. The, the gun belt hits the um the floor in my stall, right? Now I got two hands around his neck and I'm pulling and the metal aluminum wall now is starting to buckle, right? Oh, yeah. And he's so sweaty now that I couldn't hold on to him. He goes over the wall. They go crashing into the next wall, right? I pull up my pants. I grab my gun belt. I lock it on. I go charging out of the men's room and they're gone. Oh. I run into the food court lobby. There's not a soul around except like a 300 pound porter with a floor buffing machine. <laughs> and in the book I write like, so what was I supposed to do at this point? Call the police on myself? Yeah. <laughs> cops would, I would have been the laughing stock of the Bronx had I gone exactly. that route. So exactly. Despite almost getting my gun taken in the toilet, I decided to keep that little secret to myself until 30 years later when I decided to write a book. There you go. Yeah. Sounds like quite a shit show. That was a shit show. That's I, that's I wish I would have known you before. That would have been a great title. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's funny. I'm sure you have a lot of crazy stories. That was a funny one. What's uh tell me something a little more scary since uh that's what I deal with. I have you ever like had any encounters with like a serial killer or anything like that or like a t- murderer or like yeah. some crazy so, tell me you know, like a crazy I'll rattle off three. I'll rattle off three really. All right. So I'll, I'll tell yeah. you one that's scary. So okay. this is, I always call it the Hansel and Gretel story. I used to work with this guy later in my career. We used to call him cancer because he killed more people than cancer. He was like oh. in a couple of gun battles and he always oh. came out on top. Oh wow. yeah. He was a great okay. cop. So anyway, it's the early nineties. He's working with another guy who on the side is an amateur magician. And the guy, <laughs> the amateur magician was a pain in the ass. So like, 
it's the early 90s. We're going to bars. We're talking to girls. And the magician would come over and he'd start pulling the flowers out of his wrist and pulling the coins behind yeah. the girl's ears. And it's like, he was cock blocking us with magic. So <laughs> I told Cancer, I says, listen, I says, get him the fuck out of here. I said, because he's just ruining our shit. And he goes, you know, the funny thing is, if he took his police career as seriously as the magician stuff, his magic show, he goes, he'd be the greatest cop in the world. Well, anyway, a couple of months later, my old partner and the magician get called down to this basement apartment. It's on a midnight in the winter, and it just calls for help. That's it. They go into this basement of this of, of this building, and there's two apartments. So they go to door number one. They pound on door number one. Nobody answers. They go to pound on door number two. And just before my old partner bangs on the door, the magician stops him, and he goes, listen, we made so much noise down here with our radios and stuff. If anybody called the police, they would have come out. Let's get out of here. Mm-hmm. So my old partner goes, no, nah, I'm going to knock on the door. He goes, come on, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Let's get out of here. And they leave. What they didn't know was behind door number two, the super of the building was selling Coke out of the apartment. And he had fallen behind in his payments. So in the drug world, you know, they don't send friendly notices, friendly reminders. They don't cancel your cable. They're going to kill you. So oh. they sent a couple of hitmen. And they did, it's an old gypsy trick. They got a really pretty girl and they knocked on the door and they put the girl in front of the door. Mm. So the super knows he's in trouble, but he sees an attractive female. He figures, oh, all right, I'm going to, you know, hook up with this chick or sell us some Coke or whatever. He opens the door. The two hitmen come in with the girl. They start pistol whipping him, kicking his ass. Where's the drugs? Where's the money? The super doesn't have any answers. So they shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. Ooh. They take him out of the apartment and they throw him in the, in the, in the furnace of the building. Wow. So while he's going up like a Puerto Rican fire log, they go back into the apartment. Now they're ransacking it. While they're ransacking the apartment, my old partner and the magician are outside and they're about to knock on the door. So they see them. So the, so the bad guys in the apartment devise a plan and they tell the female who's in on this. If those two cops knock on the door, let them in and start yelling. They were uh, Yugoslavian. Just start yelling in Yugoslavian and lead them towards the kitchen. When you cross the threshold of this doorway, throw yourself on the floor. We'll come out around. We'll shoot the two cops. Wow. We'll, throw them, we'll throw them in the incinerator and we'll get the hell out of here. Well, they never knocked on the door, which saved their lives. Ugh. So about a week or two later, the super's family starts asking, like, what happened to this guy? The detectives get involved. The detectives turn around and they see that there was a call to that apartment for calls for help. So they bring in my old partner and the magician and they go, you know, was anything suspicious? Did you notice anything different? And they said, no, the only thing was when we were leaving, there was a car parked in the fire hydrant and we wrote it a ticket. Well, that was the getaway car. Oh, so that, okay. that's actually how they caught the son of Sam in New York. So, oh car, my goodness, wow! Yeah, so the, the car was registered to the female who was in on it. Uh-huh. They track her down. She starts giving up the other guys, trying to minimize her involvement. Of course, mm-hmm. they catch everybody, and then they had to go back to the building in February and shut the heat off for hours okay. to let that thing cool off to get the guy's skull and bones out of the. Um, yeah, so that's a yeah. story from Oh my goodness. NYPD through the looking glass. It's called Last Night a Magician Saved My Life. Oh my goodness, that was a close call. Very close call. Um so speaking of that, okay, I I have a question for you. What this is like um a little more on the serious side, but what are some differences or what what have you noticed between when you were a police officer and then things happening in current events and police officers now? Um, like what talk about that a little bit, how things have changed since your time in law enforcement? OK, 
And so I, I'm out of I'm out of it 15 years, but what I have noticed is, and this isn't good for society, right? So mm-hmm. cops have basically been villainized the last several years. And what's gonna happen was, and I wrote about this years ago before it even happened, but I saw it coming. Cops are not going to be as proactive as they used to be. They're going to be report takers mm-hmm. and they're going to show up. They're going to take their time getting to busy calls because they don't want to be in the middle of a gunfight or something because cops aren't afraid to get. The thing is with cops, cops aren't afraid of getting killed. Cops are afraid of getting in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a personality type that wants to become a police officer because you want to do good. and You usually play by the rules. So if you think of, think of it that way, you're not afraid of getting killed. You're more afraid of getting in trouble, losing your job, going yeah, to jail. Yeah. So what cops are going to do now is they're going to be less proactive. They're going to take their time going to calls. It's basically pres- self-preservation because if you go on something heavy and you're in a gun battle, and then do you really want news trucks camped outside your house and, you know, bothering yeah. your family and where your yeah. wife and kids go to school? And exactly. Yeah. So it, it, it's not good for society. Uh, you know, and everybody nowadays, they're more interested in making a TikTok video or a YouTube video than just minding their own business. You know but, I mean? like, hey, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, the first thing everybody does is pull out a camera. Instead well, of yes, them. yes. True, true. Everything is recorded now. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, how many books have you written? Six. Six books. Okay. Over what? How? How long a period of time? Fifteen years? Did you say? Six. Six <laughs> so years. I, I okay. About, okay. A book a year. about a book a year. Okay. And are they all funny, or are some of them serious, or you know, um, or do they all have they, lots they of all stories? Have a comedic. I mean, so my police career, there's a lot of dark stuff in it, but I try to put like a funny spin on it. It's dark humor. Yes, that's great. You have to do that. Sometimes you have to have a sense of humor or you would go crazy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You wouldn't survive a career in law enforcement if you don't have a sense of humor. And the people that don't have a sense of humor in law enforcement, you could spot very easily because they're the traffic cops. Oh, okay. Okay. So in any police department, uh, trooper barracks, there's always a couple of people. They're antisocial. They never dated a girl in school. They were were bullied. (laughs) So they become traffic cops and okay. traffic cops. The power's in the pen. They're yep. very, it's, there's no gray area. It's white and black. And they're usually pariahs in their, <laughs> amongst their peers. I mean, you go into an NYPD precinct again, things have changed. Yeah. But when I retired, it's like, they, they just weren't looked at highly. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. And a lot of times if they really got out of control, I mean, no one would talk to them. I mean, yeah. it's just because there's no leeway. They don't look at people as people. They look at people as statistics. Gotcha. Gotcha. Hi, everybody. Hi everybody. This is Bo. And this is Adam. Thank you for listening to our mom's podcast, True Crime IRL. If you're obsessed with murder shows like your mom, you can support the podcast by going to Patreon and becoming a member. Just go to patreon.com slash podcast. It helps your mom pay all the bills and buy us new shoes. Lock your doors, people! Just lock them. Bye-bye. Have you known, a lot of people say, you know, there are bad cops, like lots of bad cops. I know there are good cops, bad cops, just like any career. But do you have any stories about, you know, something that happened like that? Like a, like any, yeah, like a something. think Think of it this way. So the New York City Police Department at any given time is between 
35,000 and 40,000 members. Wow. So that's like a good attendance at Yankee Stadium on the weekend, right? Yeah. They do at the time when I got hired, they did do a good job with screening. I mean, there was the entry exam, there was a battery of tests you had to take. I mean, they screened you. They they came to my house. They still spoke to my neighbors. They went to my jobs where I worked. I mean, they went to my high school. I mean, they That's really thorough. They would get. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I don't know if it still is. But having said that, you're always going to get bad apples that get through. And with a department that big, it's going to happen. And the New York City Police Department, I'll say this about them because they do a lot of things wrong. But one of the things they do right is they they tell you up front in the police academy and nonstop. If, if you're going to steal or be brutal or you're going to be a corrupt cop, we're going to find you. We're going to throw you in jail. I mean, there's no awesome. hiding. There's no I know, like they say, oh, the blue wall, please. Mm-hmm. You will go to jail so fast because nobody nobody wants to work with a guy or a woman that, that's doing that crap. Right. But yeah. There's a chapter in um, NYPD's Flying Circus it's called mm-hmm. Crossing Over to the Dark Side. And there's plenty of stories of guys that I knew. Um, I actually worked with a guy who always had money problems. We were rookie cops together. I worked with him for a short time. And then he wanted to work with a childhood friend. So he went to another precinct. But it was odd because like this is in the the mid 80s. And I barely knew the guy. And I remember one time he wanted to buy a new car or a used car. And he goes, hey, can you lend me $5,000? And I was like, that kind of struck me as, yeah, well, $5,000 in like 1988. I mean, $5,000 now is a lot of money. Wow. I yeah. Said, no, I don't. I says, you know, I says, for what? He goes, oh, I, I want to buy a Corvette. And he he was married going through a divorce. He gotten um another woman pregnant and he was paying for her apartment. He had another girl. He was just a mess. Yeah, and, sounds like um, it. What no one knew um was he had a cousin that was a drug dealer and oh. uh he got caught, I mean, big time. He got caught by the DEA mm-hmm. for transporting drugs and um you know, he went to jail for it. You yeah. Know? But yeah, I did. I did know guys that went bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So are you, do you still are you still friends with some of the police officers you used to work with? Do you stay in contact with any of them? Well, not the ones that went bad. But no, yeah. no, not oh, yeah. the bad ones. The good ones. Are you do you still keep in touch? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny. When I got into writing these books. I was really I was nervous because I didn't know the reception was going to be with. My yes, friends, my that's what I was wondering. Everybody loved it. Everybody loved it. And, yeah. and now, you know, my friends who were leery about it are like, remember this guy? You should write about this. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I wondered how they received it, if they would like it or, you oh, know. I was a nervous wreck. I didn't know how that was going to get received. But it, it's, um, I, I try to do it. Um, I think I got it right as far as what I'm doing. And I get contacted all the time. And then there's cops that I don't know that reach out to me through Twitter and Facebook and, oh. hey, uh, you know, um, they want to get into writing and, you know, I can help them when I can. Yeah. So how so making the leap from law enforcement to being an author, that's those are two different worlds. Uh, did you just dive right in or did you have training on how to write or anything like that? Did you did you take a class or anything or did you just start writing and just go for it? I just went for it. I mean, I retired from the police department. I moved down to Florida. I became a cop down here. I didn't really like it. It was like it was going from going from the largest police department in the country to being on an episode of Reno nine one one. You know, there's yeah. they want you to wrestle with alligators and this. Oh my gosh! Like, yeah, <laughs> we, we don't have that shit in the Bronx. It's fine. Yeah. So I re-retired. I was bored out of my mind, and I just started writing these stories down. And friends used to come to me and go, "You, you got all these great stories. You should really write them down." 
And I just did. And, um, you know, it's like, I didn't become a cop to write books. It just kind of happened that way. Like years after I retired right. about five, six, seven years ago, I said, you know, I think I can do this. And yeah, I don't have any formal training, but, um, you know, I've got really good editors. Yeah. So, you know, so, yes. Apparently, yes. You're doing very well. Six books. I mean, that's awesome. One of your books talks about the Catholic church. You, it is, um, what confessions of a Catholic, what is confessions of a Catholic high school graduate, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so is that more, it's like a funny, just funny anecdotes and stuff like that from your youth? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the Bronx and at the time it was a big deal to send your kid to, to um, Catholic high school. And back then just the, uh, the Bronx, I think had 13 Catholic high schools scattered across the Bronx. So I didn't want to go. I, I went to public school for my first eight years. And I never forget my dad says, you're going to Catholic school next year. And I'm like, why? We don't even go to mass. Like we were Catholic, but we weren't <laughs> yeah. practicing. Yeah. And goes, you're a clown. And if you go to public school, you're going to be a bigger clown. So you're going to Catholic high school. And I hated it. I stopped my feet, but it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. And it's just stories about growing up in the Bronx and what it was like going to Catholic high school. And the funny thing is my former Catholic high school produced 40, 50 NYPD guys that would oh. go into the police academy for decades. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So a, a, a law enforcement, um, a person in law enforcement, and then writing a book about the Catholic church and Catholic um, high school upbringing, that book could have gone, a could have gone a different way. It could have gone more like the true crime way, but no, do you have any, what's, what's a funny story from your growing up Catholic? Catholic high school died. Yeah. Oh, well, the books, the book opens up where I've got to, I've got to make my confession a couple of days before I make my confirmation. Mm -hmm. So my dad was upset because I told him last minute, we drove to the church. The church is getting closed up. There's this old Monsignor locking up the church. And he's like, you know what, you know, he's looking at his watch. He goes, you, you know, He's telling me, you know, when you're late. And I said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I, I lied. I said, well, my father got a flat tire. Oh, geez. Get here. So, you know, like I put in the book, I realized lying to a priest seconds before confessing my sins was not the wrong thing yeah. to do. But I said, well, if he's not too judgmental, I'll tell him about the opening line. And I get into the booth and he's tired and old and cranky. My dad's waiting outside in the car and my brother's outside, outside the confession booth with me. And I mean, how much could a 13 year old confess? I, I really did. Yeah. I first, you know, I says, well, you know, I was disrespectful to my grandmother. And he goes, your grandmother's an old woman. Okay. Any sin I threw at this guy, he just kept getting madder and madder. So finally, I just said, you think we could call it a day? You don't want me in here. I don't want to be here. And he's just, start, he went nuts. He started yelling and screaming. So I try to get out of the confession booth, but my younger brother is holding me inside. Oh. He's got his weight up against the door. And I'm like, leave it to the little my brothers. Like, now you're going to hell. So finally I gave the, <laughs> the confession booth door a shot and I knocked my brother on his ass across the, um, the tile floor. Oh my gosh. Reese comes running out and he's going to beat the shit out of me. So my brother and I ran up the steps, ran as we're running through the church. I remembered where he had shut the light, turned the lights on. So to put some distance between the priest and us, because I knew if my father seen me running outside with a priest on, on my tail, my father would hang me up on a cross. So I shut the lights off on the church and basically the old, the old <laughs> priest got trapped in the dark. 
Oh my gosh. Wow. So I ran outside. I get in the car and now all of a sudden my father's Phil Donnie. Was the priest upset? I'm like, no, no, no. Can we just go now? I got to watch my show. <laughs> so we drove off and kids got the memory of a fly. I'm saying to myself, we don't go to church. This guy doesn't know my name. I'm never going to see him again. I just got to make my confirmation on, on, uh, on Saturday and we're done. Yeah. So Saturday morning, I'm sitting in a classroom with, you know, 20, 30 other kids. And the priest comes into the room and he scans the room like a lineup. And he goes, I'd like to have a word with that young man. He dragged me out of the hallway and basically threw me into a classroom and he was beating the shit out of me. Oh my goodness. Like how a kid's mind processes things as I'm getting like bounced around a blackboard, I'm looking over his shoulder and I'm looking at the alphabet written in cursive. Like I'm just, that's just what I'm focusing on to get this. Yeah. So after he's done giving me a beating, I thought he was going to tell my parents and he goes, get the hell out of here. So I'm like, is this over? So I, you know, I go with my friends and they're asking me what happened. I just, nothing. And uh, I make my confirmation and then I'm standing in front of the church with my family and we're taking photos and the priest comes over and I'm like, Oh shit. Now, now I'm going to get, this is going to be round two. Yep. He's going to tell my father what I did. Oh, now yeah. get another beating. Yeah. And the priest comes over and he grabs my cheek. He goes, what a fine young man. Oh, and it's my like gosh. he's rubbing my nose and shit in front of my parents. And there's nothing I can do about it. And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And my father's like, oh, he's a nice old priest. I'm like, yeah, okay. But the funny thing is that story is like 20 years later, the guy was still alive. My aunt's husband died. And uh, we, had a, we went to the mass and uh, it was the same priest. And I'm telling, oh, I'm telling, what are the I'm chances? Like 28 years old, and I'm telling my father, you see that old son of a bitch? <clears throat> my father goes, Yeah, I go, he beat the chin. I mean, my father goes, When? I go, Yeah. I said, Now all of a sudden you're appalled. I said, Had <laughs> I told you that at 13 years old, I said, You've mellowed a lot. You forget. Yeah. So there's a lot of stories about growing up in the Bronx and the Catholic Church. And yeah. Catholic high school. Oh, man. That if, okay, if they did that to my kid, I wouldn't be very happy about that. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't too happy about it at the time either. But <laughs> Catholic Church has changed a lot, I think, Definitely. over the years. They can't really get away with that stuff anymore. Um, so let's talk about your latest book. Talk about that a little bit. What's the name of your latest book? And tell me a little bit what that's about. Well, that that's Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. But my latest NYPD book is yeah. um, NYPD Law and Disorder. Okay. And it's just, it's loaded with funny stories from, from the police department. Um, there's story, there's a story in there. We did a, a search warrant of the mobsters uh, office in, in Queens. And while we're in this guy's office, my partner finds a pineapple hand grenade. Oh, okay. And, yeah, and my partner at the time, you know, he was a cook in the army. He wasn't a demolitions expert. And he's looking at this thing. He's like, Oh, pineapple grenade, Vietnam era. And he's walking <laughs> around with it. And I go, put, the, put that, <laughs> thing down and he goes no i'm gonna i'm gonna pull the pin and throw it in jamaica bay which if you know the area jamaica bay no one calls the cops because the whole area at the time was run by the mob yeah and i said if you put the grenade down and we call the bomb squad they're going to come with all their toys and we're going to make mega overtime he goes mm-hmm. yes we can do that <laughs> he puts the hand grenade back in the shoebox i tell my lieutenant it's like what hand grenade okay everybody out he gets everybody out of the office and like, you know, they put crime scene tape and they call the bomb squad. The next thing you know, there's news helicopters coming and the bomb squad shows up and that guy is in like that anteater costume. He comes oh, walking yes. out with the shoe yeah. yeah. My old partner was walking around with that thing like an hour before. And now it's a big to do. Like he was going to launch the thing in Jamaica Bay. And now the bomb oh, squad takes it and detonates it. 
but you got your overtime in. We got our overtime. <laughs> okay. Tell my listeners real quick where they can find your books, where they can find out more about you and anything that you have coming up that you want to talk about. Sure. All my books are available on Amazon. Um, they're all ten. All my paperbacks are ten dollars each. I try to keep the price point low. Yeah. Uh, ebook downloads are two ninety nine. Yeah, that's um, great. You can follow me on Twitter at VicFerrari50 and Instagram. Uh, okay. I've got a Facebook page. I don't know the name, but just look up VicFerrari. Awesome. Me in uniform, and um, you know, I'm just going to yeah. keep continuing cranking out uh, NYPD books. I love it. That's something that my listeners, I think, would really like to listen to and read or. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on my show. I really appreciate having you and I really appreciate all these wonderful stories. Because <laughs> I know you edit this. Do you want I do. me do, do you want me to tell a homicide stories or. Yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Um, okay. I think my my Zoom just said did something about. um that it's running out of time, but we'll just keep going and see how it goes. Okay. Okay, Let's do that. I'll I'll, I'll tell you two quick homicide stories. Yeah. That'd be great. Okay. Yeah. So it's it. Yeah. No problem. Cause I, I I realize you know, your, your um, genre with your podcast. Yes. So it's the early early nineties. My partner and I are coming off our meal hour. It's about eight o'clock at night and the female cop hands us a slip of paper and says, can you go to this apartment? It sounds like a cardiac. I said, okay, we rush over to this apartment. It's about the third or fourth floor. As we're going up the stairs, you hear screaming and crying. We go into this apartment. It's packed. We're just like swimming through people, right? Yeah. We get to the kitchen. I see a pair of legs sticking out to the side. There's a woman laying on the ground and there's a guy on top of a screaming mom, mom, mom. I tell him to get up. The woman has been stabbed to death multiple times. Mm -hmm. There's blood everywhere. And, you know, when you first get cut, Blood is a bright red color. Yes. It was like a rusted brown. So we knew mm. she was, she was, you know, she was stabbed a long time ago, hours ago. So we sit the sun down and we start looking around the apartment. The apartment's been ransacked. So we start asking him questions like, when was the last time you saw your mother? And he went from being hysterical, screaming and crying to like, you flipped the switch. Oh. When was the last time I saw my mother? Yeah. Uh, four hours ago. Red flag. Yeah. Does anybody else have a key to the apartment? Does anybody else have a key to the apartment? So he's buying time. When you're asking somebody a question and they keep repeating the question, they're buying time. They're trying to come up with an answer. So as we're looking around the apartment, in addition to him turning into a weirdo, we start looking around the apartment and yeah, it's ransacked, but it's staged. So when a burglar comes into a residence, right, they start pulling out drawers and dumping things for the content. Yeah. Yeah. But the drawers are placed back in. So you got the contents on the floor. Something A burglar doesn't take the time to put the no, drawers back in. definitely not. On the floor, the woman's handbag has been dumped upside down, turned right side up, and nothing's been taken. There's cash oh, and credit cards. Okay. So that doesn't make sense. No. So and the way he's acting, the detectives say, okay, we're going to take you to the station house, and we're going to get to the bottom of this, right? So I'm processing the crime scene, and... Um, he goes down to the detectives and he's not giving it up. He's just, he's being evasive. He's not giving it up. And uh, they didn't have, he didn't want a lawyer up. He didn't ask for a lawyer, but at the same time, they know if they keep pushing him, he's going to, they're going to make another run at him tomorrow. So they let him go. And I process the crime scene. So in the NYPD, the first responding cop to a homicide has to put on the a foot on the on the, the deceased foot. It's called a toe tag. Yeah, with their yep. name and all their information. Yeah, and then the following day, 
that responding member has to go to the morgue to identify the body. Okay. So I go down to the morgue the next morning and the Bronx morgue at the time was in Jacoby hospital. I don't know if they were between morgues or what, but they didn't have like the slide out drawers like you see on television. Yeah. There's some young kid work and I tell him the victim's name. He pulls out a gurney. He pulls off a sheet. It's a black guy with a beard. I said, no, victims are Hispanic female. He goes, mm-hmm. oh, puts the sheet back over on the guy's face, pushes him back into the room. Comes out with another gurney, right? Oh, my Flips gosh. off the sheet. It's an old white guy. I says, listen, pal, I didn't come here to see everybody that died in the Bronx <laughs> last night. I want to see this woman. I said, yeah. let me go in there. So I walk into this large refrigerated room. It was like something out of a horror movie. Oh. Got like six or eight bodies just laying on, on, on gurneys. Yeah. And I saw, I saw dried blood on one and I pulled mm-hmm. it off and it was the woman. So I identified it. So while I'm doing that, the next morning, the detectives go to the building to talk, to make another run at this kid while they're walking into the hallway. It was a big hallway with like a turn as they go into the hallway, they hear yelling and screaming in Spanish. The woman had three or four brothers Okay. That were grilling their nephew. What happened? Something's yeah. not right. The detectives told us you're holding something back. The kid confesses to his uncles in the hallway with the detectives just standing around the side. It was, thank God it was two Spanish detectives that oh. spoke Spanish. Yeah. They heard him give it up. And what it was is he was a crackhead. He had stopped using drugs. And then, of course, he starts using drugs. The mother said, I'm tired of you stealing. You got to go. I want you out of the apartment. He grabs a butcher knife out of the kitchen and stabs her to death. So what he does was he takes his bloody clothes, he takes the murder weapon, he puts it in a plastic bag. Then what he does is when he leaves the apartment to get rid of this stuff, he leaves the door ajar, hoping that someone else will discover her. Yeah, yeah. He's not a lucky fellow because he comes back four hours later and no one's discovered her. So he goes through the trouble of getting on the phone and calling everybody mm-hmm. and then starts putting on, you know, yeah, bad yeah. dinner theater yeah, trying to get out of this. And I just checked the other day. He's still in jail. And that happened oh. in shit. Well, 1994. Okay. Well, he'll probably be in prison the rest of his life, maybe. Hopefully. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. What a story. That's just one of many. I'm you sure. Another one. What would you like to hear? A trip to the morgue or another mm. homicide? I want to hear something terrifying. (laughs) Okay. Gotcha. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So it's the, it's again, it's the early nineties. It was in February. It was a slow night. It was a week night. It was raining all day, all evening, about nine o'clock at night, radio's dead. And it comes over that there's a, 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 so the closest radio car starts rolling over there. And then the 911 dispatcher goes, I'm getting multiple calls there. So that's everybody in the building is calling up on this. So mm-hmm. another car starts rolling. And my partner and I, we weren't doing anything. We just, oh, let's be the third wheel. So we start rolling. So the, the responding cops pull up. They get, out of the, they get out of their radio car. And they can hear screaming coming out of this third-story window. Oh. So instead of going around to the front door, they decide to climb the fire escape. They climb the fire escape. And when they look inside the window, there's a woman laid out on the floor. There's a guy standing over her with a carving knife, and he's basically decapitating her. Oh, my Pops God. Yeah, they, they get on the radio, and they start screaming into the radio. You know, essentially, he's got a large knife. He's stabbing the shit out of this woman, right? So now everybody's racing, racing over there. My partner and I meet up with another radio car at the front of the building. We jump out. As we're getting out of the car, we hear about six or seven shots go off. 
So we're putting over the radio shots fired. We go up the stairs. We're pounding on the door, pounding on the door. And these two cops are now inside the apartment. They came in through the window and they're yelling to us, don't shoot, don't shoot. We're in the apartment. It's cool. Don't shoot. Because they're afraid, you know, they're going to get a friendly fire. Yeah. So they opened the door and it was like something out of a Stephen King movie. Laid out on the floor is this poor woman. The only thing holding her head to her body was her spine. Like basically her whole neck was gone. Wow. She had a hole in the side on the a hole in the in the in her forehead and her eyes and mouth, like the last breath or expression on her face was just terror. Oh my gosh. What it was is she was living with this guy. I don't know what happened, but he lost his mind. And basically first he started with a hammer and he broke everything in that apartment, the toilet, the sink, the mirrors, the walls. There wasn't one thing in that apartment. In addition to her, that wasn't broken. That's he put a hole in her head with the hammer, and then he was trying to decapitate her. Well, while that was going on, the two, the two, the fire escape banging on the window. He turns around and goes, "Oh, you want some of this?" Gets off of her with the carving knife, comes over to the window, throws open the window, and now he starts lunging out the window with the carving knife. And back then, we had the thirty-eights, thirty-eight caliber revolvers. They unload into him. He goes falling back into the apartment, and when he falls down, the carving knife, when in his hand hits the tile floor, goes spinning into the kitchen. And remember what I told you earlier about cops are more afraid of getting in trouble than killed. My friend that shot the guy goes, you know, the only thing that was going through my mind is they're going to find that knife in the kitchen and think that we shot it on our man. I go, dude, oh. you're not thinking straight. He just decapitated something. Yeah. So good. Yeah. So um, well, we were in the hospital about a close call. My friend found out later, the, when the guy lunged out the window with the carving knife, he was wearing a bit. My friend, the cop, was wearing a baggy pair of pants. The carving knife went right through his pants. So, like, an inch closer, we probably would have hit him in the femoral artery and he would have bled out on the fire escape. But, yeah, that, wow. was, um, that was a bloody, terrible crime scene. I remember walking through that apartment and there was so much blood loss from her. And the gunshot victim that as you're walking through the apartment, it's like your feet are just stopping in the blood. Oh. It's just like sticking. It's sticking. Wow. Like I remember even like walking out of the apartment. It was like you were just like it was like you were in a glue trap in the early mm-hmm. 90s. Um, crazy, crazy. A long time ago. Well, that's. Yeah, that, was, that was a bad, that's a bad crime scene. That's awful. So is it hard to sleep at night when you see this stuff or do you become desensitized? I know I would probably, I mean, after a while, it's kind of like, it doesn't, I, I nothing shocks you. Sensitized, but you know, nothing, no, nothing shocks me. I mean, by the time, you know, by the time I retired, I mean, I had seen everything, you know, mm-hmm. and you, if, if you're going to be successful in that line of work, you have to things, you can't take things home to your friends and family. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. um, you have to compartmentalize these things. There's work. There's home. That's tough. And, and no, and no cop worth his salt thinks that anything bad is going to happen to them. Because if you start thinking like that, you're not going to be effective. You're not going to be able to get into car chases. No. You're not going to be able to chase people because you hesitate. Like I, I always mm-hmm. like to tell the story. Like by the time nine eleven happened, I had thirteen or fourteen years in. So as bad as that was. You know, I didn't I've never had nightmares about it or anything because 
I had seen so much by the time that happened that I, that I learned to compartmentalize. But I guess yeah. to answer your question, no, I've never, I've never things. You say that one more time. You broke up a little bit. You've never what? Oh, I'm sorry. No. I, to answer your question earlier, I, I've never had nightmares about seeing these terrible things that happened throughout my career. That's good. Man, you've got some stories. And if my listeners want to hear more stories, they need to read your books because they are full of not only comedy, but some crazy true crime stories too. Some some scary stuff. You'll laugh, you'll cry, a little bit of everything maybe. So Vic Ferrari, you can find his books on, on Amazon. Amazon's the biggest and baddest cat as far as selling books. So yeah, all my books are available on Amazon. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for coming today and visiting with me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Kelly. I really appreciate you having me on your show. Yeah. Okay. Bye. (laughs) I hope you guys enjoyed this interview with author Vic Ferrari. If you want to buy his books, and I highly recommend you do, go to Amazon and search for author Vic Ferrari. He's got six books out. They are lighthearted true crime tales that will be a great palate cleanser in between episodes of horrific true crime podcasts and episodes of Forensic Files. I've got some new episodes coming out soon, so stay tuned for more in the following weeks. And until next time, you know what to do. Lock your doors, people. Bye-bye. True Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. Please subscribe to True Crime IRL wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving a five-star review. Go to truecrimeirl.com for more information. Support the show by becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash truecrimeirlpodcast. You can also support the show by leaving a tip in the TCIRL tip jar. Go to truecrimeirl.com and click on the donate button or buy merch in the TCIRL merch shop truecrimeirl.com slash merch. Watch True Crime IRL on YouTube at youtube.com slash kellybrinktv. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at truecrimeirl, all one word. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. 